0: Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast, as it's always been, where my guests tell me the five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish, and one thing that they'd be glad to forget forever. My guest in this episode is the stand-up comedian, writer, and actor, Dane Baptiste. Dane has had a decade of dominance as a trailblazer, innovator and incendiary voice in the comedy world. In 2014, he was nominated for Best Newcomer at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, the first black British comic to ever be nominated, extraordinarily. This led to Dane creating, writing and starring in Sully D on BBC Three, the first sitcom written by a black British writer with a black British cast on the BBC in over 20 years, which is not only extraordinary, but shocking. The show was purchased by Lionsgate for an American version under the auspices of scary movie creator Keenan Ivory Wayans. Meanwhile, Dane's live work has gone from strength to strength since his debut show, Citizen Dane, with successive live shows, Reasonable Doubts and Gold, Oil and Drugs, which not only sold out internationally as far afield as Australia and the UAE, but have also been adapted for shows such as Live at the BBC on Netflix and Live at Soho Theatre on Amazon Prime. His highly successful podcast, Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, has enjoyed guests ranging from Reggie Yates to pop superstar Jamelia and conservative peer Baroness Varsi to former Labour leader Ed Miliband. Dane has appeared on and hosted Live at the Apollo. He's been a guest on Mock the Week, 8 Out of 10 Cats Does Countdown, The Stand-Up Sketch Show. Black, British and Funny, Frankie Boyle's New World Order, Roast Battle on Comedy Central, Comedians Giving Lectures and Hypothetical on Dave, Tonight at the London Palladium, Alan Davis' As Yet Untitled and many more. This year, after the release of his first online special, The Chocolate Chip, Dane will be back on international tour into 2024. So it's lucky that I managed to link up with Dane from the offices of Acast to talk about the five things he'd want in his time capsule i hope you enjoy our conversation i normally record this from my home but i came into london lucky me to do a voiceover and uh, i couldn't get back in time so in fact i'm at the people who put both of our podcasts out i'm at Acast. oh cool okay yeah this is their studio did you know about this is it in shoreditch yeah, it is. Where are you? Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm in Broccoli. But I'm glad you're in Broccoli, really, Dane, because if you were just round the corner, you'd go, oh, no, we should have come in and done it. Yeah, yeah.
3: of course, yeah, yeah, but um, it's all good. How are you? All right? Yeah, I'm good. I'm just, uh, I'm going to Dubai on Thursday for some shows. I'm doing some shows in the Emirates, so I'm doing uh, four shows in Dubai, or five shows in Dubai, and a couple of shows in Abu Dhabi.
0: Lovely. Yeah, I looked, I looked at your website, and you're going all over the shop. You're yeah. You're going up to Scandinavia, and... Yes. Where was the one that made me? It made me laugh because uh, it basically says you're going to Abu Dhabi, Dubai, uh, then there's London, Liverpool, Berlin, Uppsala, Stockholm, Malmo, Gothenburg, or Gutenberg as I call it, uh, and then Wickham. Yes. <laughs> The cherry on top of the cake. (laughs) (laughs) Finally made it. Yeah, Yeah, I know. But you really have made it. I think it's fantastic. It's an extraordinary fact, though, isn't it? When I read it, I couldn't believe it, that you were the first black comedian to be nominated for the Perrier Award, or basically for, you know, best show at Edinburgh.
3: Yeah, or Black British. Black British, wow. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Matt O'Kine, who's an Australian-based comedian, and uh, Hannibal Barres had had plaudits before me. So yeah, first first domestic act, I guess. That's amazing though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah but I know, I, I agree, it's, it's crazy. And it wasn't something I was aware of before the nominations came out. But um, I think it's had a very positive effect on the landscape of comedy in the UK. and uh, Yeah, it has. Apart from strength to strength since. so um, But no, it is, it's a wonderful plaudit to receive. And I think that most people don't want to necessarily reduce their creativity to their political identification. But at the same mm. time, I think that it's definitely a part of my experience when I relay it in my work, yeah. and so yeah, it's it was is yeah massively flattering product to receive, and I think for a lot of my peers who mm. had felt like because it had taken so long that <laughs> Edinburgh wasn't somewhere they'd be able to uh, realize their creative potential, it definitely changed So so like almost ten years later, I was in at the Fringe this year. And it's, yeah, it's very different.
0: there. It, it is really different. The change is amazing, actually. And then you get here uh, winning the,
3: you know, Best Comedian. And exactly, best yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah, exactly, Best Show. So it's definitely opened up eyes and ears and palettes to uh, very different perspectives, which are, themselves are also British as well, however nuanced. And I think, uh, yeah, hopefully long it continue. Yeah, absolutely. Well, about bloody time, that's what I'd say. Brilliant. Crazy. Anyway, we're going to
0: talk about, I think, happy things. Yes. We're going to talk about things that you love. Yes, yeah, exactly. So what have
3: you come up with for me? Well, I hope that I've done it properly, but I think there were some things I thought about choosing, which I thought might be kind of make it a bit too easy. So at first I was going to be like, if I go with like an iPod, but yeah. then I thought that might be a bit too easy to just have a catalogue of music on there, or podcast makes it quite easy, and it should be <laughs> a bit more nuanced. But um so I've tried to narrow it down a bit. So the first thing is a book within a book. So when I was at school doing my GCSEs, mm-hmm. I read 1984. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're in school and you are mandated to read something, it can be hard to take it in. Yeah. Uh, you think like you're being pushed to do so. But um, I think I had one coach trip where I went to Yorkshire to see some family members and was like, let me just knock out this book. It'll make the journey much quicker. And yeah, was completely enthralled by it. but especially. I said it's the book within the book, which is the uh, theories on oligarchical collectivism, where one of the characters or lesser protagonists, uh, Goldstein, gives the book to Winston, who is the uh, lead protagonist in 1984. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's an important book because even though it does seem quite bleak, I think it gives a blueprint for the machinations of human society and how things function and how many social patterns are repeated throughout history. And, um I just think it's a central reading. I think it's definitely helped me to process and rationalize social and political issues uh which has informed my work as a comedian and an ob- uh, observational comic mm. and um I think it's essential reading. I think that it's uh definitely gives you an idea of how things work because I guess I was trying to picture who would be discovering a time capsule and at what particular stage in human civilization or whatever species follows us (laughs) um, (laughs) could look at it and um, have an idea of maybe why we prospered or we uh, failed as a people. So, Mm. Do you think they'd, if it is way
0: in the future, and this is some new civilization, do you think they'd take 1984 as an example of, well, that's how it actually was? Or do you think they'll take it as the warning that it is?
3: I think it could be both. Mm. I think that uh, that's the thing with history is that it's the interpretation is probably left open to, whatever the ruling institution is, uh, because they might look at it and be like, oh, this works, this is how you can control people. <laughs> but we're hoping that they don't use that as a uh, resource for further uh, repression of people's freedoms. Mm. At the same time, I guess it's just really more of a manual and people can determine, because I guess if, if we are a past civilization and they do read it, then they'll be like, well, maybe this is why it happened, because some people were trying to stop other people from being people. Yeah. And so it's important for us to let everybody live so they can see it as a very cautionary tale. Yeah, absolutely. I just think it's uh, definitely something, if people don't read 1984, I think they should definitely read theories on oligarchical collectivism. Because uh, I think that everyone understands the kind of themes of 1984, mm-hmm. and yet there are so many parallels between contemporary life and what George Orwell was talking about in 1984. That yeah. People seem to be very... Uh, ignorant of particularly people who are the most vocal about living under a uh, big brother state or a state of constant surveillance which I find very strange like people literally have enormous video screens in the form of HD TVs mm-hmm. and also I mean if you take the United States as an example you have political entities who are working to erase and rewrite history and encouraging people to use Newspeak and yet their fan base will be like this government's making things like 1994. It's like, well, no, the people that you are aligned with are doing that right now, and you don't really see it. Yeah. And so, you know, me in particular, I'm very sensitive about like what seems to be like perpetual warfare that seems to be happening as well, and who mm-hmm. kind of profits from that. Mm-hmm. I think the way that we are watching people acquiesce to a lower standard of living than their predecessors, and almost being none for that change, like you know, when you look at like a housing crisis and yeah. the uh, healthcare crisis, both here and abroad. And then language that is used. And even language is well, yeah, used. But yeah, definitely.
0: How powerful language is. That's one of the things in the book, is how you persuade people of something by using certain words. Yeah. And, and for example, the constant use of uh, the idea that we're almost being invaded by immigrants. Yeah. That in fact, they're all
3: illegal. Even, alien, the term, even the term alien, how it's used in America, which I think is very ironic mm. because... Americans claim that they have a military base in the form of Area 51 where mm. aliens have made first contact with Americans, which I find mm. so hard to believe because any alien <laughs> capable of doing global or interplanetary surveillance, if they were to pick a nation to make <laughs> first contacts with, I doubt that it would be the one nation who is openly explicit about their adversity to aliens, even yes. if these aliens are the same species as them. <laughs> you would you would if they were like cows that could fly spaceships, you also wouldn't go to America first or certain yeah. parts of Argentina or even parts of Angus, because they're like, they're not too good with cows there. <laughs> I feel like it's the same thing with like aliens in the States. And then the other idea was, uh, I kind of first heard it more from Stephen Hawking when he was like, if there are aliens, they're not coming here to make friends. No, because it's on only on the basis of, we can look at our own history and when you've seen a civilization that is technologically superior to another one that is more resource rich, mm-hmm. we know how that tends to turn out. So if there are aliens who are capable of interplanetary travel and have high levels of technology and they show up here and they look at our resource abundant planet, they're not going to be like, hey, guys, let's just hang out at Area 51. <laughs> we can look at our own behavior. So, oh,
0: look, so. a lovely desert. Let's just go there. Yeah,
3: yeah. It's and mad. I, hang out in a desert with people that hunt things that are going extinct for fun. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> it's not It's not very likely. So, uh,
0: No, no, it's not likely. It's odd, isn't it, that people are always putting forward theories that if you look at the opposite of it, or if you look at the counter-argument, the counter-argument is so sort of sensible and easy and obvious, and they will put forward the argument that is the most complicated and unbelievable and go, that's the very reason to believe it.
3: Yes, and it's, it's, I think it's also... I think people inflate these things to these hyperbolic proportions because the higher the magnitude of what you might be facing or a potential threat, the less mm-hmm. likely you have to kind of work to overcome it. Yeah. So in the same way, there are people who are like, you know what I mean? I might not drive a four by four, but if I don't drive one, it's still going to be polluting the planet. So what's the point? Mm-hmm. Because I, and I'm i sure you're same. come from a generation where just putting rubbish in the bin made you ecologically conscious. Yes. you like, just be like, well, I don't litter. You'd be like, well, I, you definitely care about the environment. And we're <laughs> at now point now where like, if you put perishable food in the same bin as your paper and plastic, you're a monster. Yes. So I think, yeah, I think sometimes people create these uh, insurmountable odds because it kind of uh, can alleviate you of accountability, which is why, yeah. again, I think the book is important because it's just like, we are people and we have a lot more power than we give ourselves credit for and mm. able to all collectively achieve through our unity, is uh, always going to be the greater sum of any imperial institution, any uh, plutocratic one, any 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 institution of dominance. It's only our own yeah, fear yeah. and willingness to acquiesce under that that stops us from being able to be who we can possibly be. Yeah. Well, the argument would be almost that they've had plenty of time and, and lots of chances, and they've yeah. never done it. They've never exactly. done it. Also, the argument could also be that history has taught us that it doesn't work. So mm-hmm. let's say that whoever discovers this time capsule is living under a autocratic or tyrannical dictatorship those have also happened before in history and at some point we've had to supplant these people as well which is kind of what yeah. it discusses but it's a uh, so no one kind of works it out I, I i just uh i think particularly being raised in like a somewhat religious Community, I should say, more than a household. So I think my parents are a bit more liberal in that respect. But mm. being brought up with, you know, you, you talk about these metaphysical, uh, spiritual forces. I think, again, it's like, you know, it's the, the parts where it's like made in their image that we as people need to take on board and realize how much power we have and how much effect we have. And and really, just, I just think for me, it's like re examining a lot of the language and a lot of the affirmations that we've repeated in history as mm-hmm. human beings, which are a lot more problematic than we think. So like I grew up and people say stuff like, well, you know, the good die young. I'm like, that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> they should not die young. Or oh, you know, the, the love of money is the root of all evil. Well, the world will suggest that people are fine with that. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should address those things as well. So mm-hmm. I think there was a lot of parts of the book I enjoyed because I think most people, when they have a their quantum of solace, they can critically look at different things and see where those problems are because there can be no perfect system anyway. But I think, as the book also suggests, is that with enough hysteria and enough fear, you can definitely create a environment of groupthink and newspeak and limit people's language to understand one another. Because as we said, it's like an immigrant never used to be like a uh, a dirty word like it is now. Asylum seeker, it yeah. used to be. How did that How did that become a dirty word? Like an asylum seeker, you know, mm. someone seeking sanctuary from the worst aspects of human existence. <laughs> really, there was a time when, particularly this part of the world, we prided ourselves on being able to take in people that are affected by despotic regimes or bringing down despotic regimes mm. rather than uh, what seems to be bankrolling them nowadays. Yeah. I'd completely forgotten. It's a long time since I've
0: read 1984, and I'd really forgotten how powerful the use of war, the threat of war, the threat of invasion was. Yeah. And uh, actually the parallel between that and, and to an extent what's happening now in the world, it's an astonishing piece of foresight really, isn't
3: it? It really is. it's it's, it's it, I find it so frighteningly prophetic, like even the points of like the, the battle lines under which uh, these post-war empires exist and how petrol warfare is a... You know, September 11th was yesterday, a time of recording. Mm -hmm. It's been like 20 years since uh, the beginning of the war on terrorism, which led me to reflect on how much progress we have made as a coalition since this. And, uh, you know, first of all, we were supposed to remove despotic rulers like the Taliban from power in Afghanistan. Mm. They are still in power. Yeah. And the cost of which has been, I think, 2.2 trillion as the cost of the war after 20 years, uh, Mm a new era of surveillance capitalism, a healthcare system that doesn't really support the people who sacrifice themselves as members of the Coalition of the Willing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Our pursuit of petrochemicals, if people believe that, could be, and a lot of people think, it's directly responsible for the climatological crisis we're dealing with now. Yeah. Isn't it amazing how almost
0: without any sort of effort they've turned the idea of a group called just stop oil because they actually got in the way of the traffic somewhat yeah. just stop oil becomes this sort of this abhorrent thing when you go no the argument is absolutely based in complete sense the idea that we are still looking for sources of oil and gas yeah but
3: what's also happened in that 20 year time as well is that i believe the interpretation of free market economics has changed as well where I think most people can understand the, the function of commercialism where you meet a demand with a supply. Mm. Whereas I think we now live in an era where we've created a new demand and it's been engineered rather than being out of necessity. Mm. So people drive cars they don't necessarily need to drive because it's now seeing more about the esteem and prestige that comes with having said car. And that is more important for people. Like I'm sure you grew up at a time where only farmers drove Land Rovers. <laughs> I did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whereas now, like, everybody has one at various different classes and stages, like, hey, could drive Land Rovers. And, and also, it's, it's kind of like seeing people be like, oh, just stop oil are stopping me from getting to work, okay? But that shouldn't really be the only objective of your day, though. No, and in, you know, 15 years' time, there may not be any work. There may not be any work, and that, and that is exactly the point. Yeah, which is also an interesting point as well, because I guess something that maybe was not necessarily uh, considered in 1984 is the proliferation of artificial intelligence, because Mm. it was a very hard thing to conceptualize at the time because other aspects of high technology were considered in the book, like video screens and surveillance. Mm. Whereas, like I said, I think particularly as a cisgender heterosexual man, a lot of uh, my peers have basically formed their self-image on the basis of having an occupation yeah. Like human beings, we really have accepted the fact that work is a part of our existential purpose. And that's starting to disappear because this jobs is going to be done for us. Even as a creative, you're not entirely safe. No, no. We've seen this, how uh, this is manifesting with the SAC like afra strike. And so we are at a point now, and I feel like some of us are there and understandably not everyone's there, but at the same time that we need to, I think I heard um, Mo Gadat talking about it on uh, another podcast, where it's like, we are, at the same time, we're at a crisis point for uh, net zero and carbon emissions. Mm. We're at the same point for, like, the proliferation of AI, in that I think, if nothing else, industrially, when this, and this already is capable enough, that if you call your bank, you can go through a phone call with bank and not speak to a human being. Yeah. You can now book an appointment for a hairdresser, tickets for the cinema, so many just... I suppose, aspects of our daily reality that we probably don't even give too much thought to that are being replaced by artificial intelligence all the time. Mm. And we are not making provisions on how we're going to be able to supplement this to people. Now, does that mean a fixed income? Or does that mean that we have to find a new way as human beings to crystallise and validate our existence? Yeah. Or then, the question is, really, do we, though? Or do we let it all fall apart? Because maybe that's where we are. And Maybe. That's a, it's a scary frontier to have to confront
0: these people. Mm-hmm. Do we go, okay, actually, do you know what? 95% of you are not worth anything to us. Yeah, that's scary as well. You know, that's the problem. When people are working on that basis of, are you worth anything? If they go, yeah. no, well, they're not. So it's not worth me setting up a system whereby I make sure that they've got healthcare and education and somewhere to live and food to eat. It's a waste of my time.
3: Yeah. And it's very scary that some people might think of it that way. Yeah. It's not that, I don't think it's like, I don't want it to be sound that bleak, but it's it's more of a question of you have to identify what it is. Yeah. So we can work out where we're going next. Hmm. But it goes to show you that there will never be a perfect reality for human beings to continue to thrive in perpetuity. So maybe it's at that point again, where we're like, we need to work out what we're going to do because what yeah. we're doing at the moment has taken us this far and where we're going next is going to require a much larger discussion. Mm-hmm. instead of people who in the midst of this panic are either trying to be like, well, this is mine. I'm not sharing it because they perceive immigrants and asylum seekers to be trying to take away what very little they have. And then that repeats on a larger scale where it's like, I remember during the pandemic and after the pandemic, Thames water doing repairs everywhere. And then I found that they're bankrupt. <laughs> but then I found that before they're bankrupt, the CEO has given herself a pay rise, which to anyone who was a sole trader, on any proprietor of a shop, increasing your salary while your business is insolvent would seem insane to anyone. <laughs> yeah. And this is what we're seeing. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of people who are having short-term self-serving solutions. But I think, you know, it's only going to take you so far. Yeah, yeah,
0: you're right. I think we all have to reanalyze the way the world is run and reanalyze our own views of what we should get and what we deserve. Because when you have individuals who are able to say well that's mine so i'm going to spend it building a rocket yes because i fancy going to space you sort of go well actually do you know what you shouldn't have that much
3: no you shouldn't have that much and the people around you that facilitate these flights of fancy and these delusions should also be like if they're going to do this they'll probably leave you too yeah i think a lot of people now feel like billionaires are deities in a way because they have found a way to navigate and have the best experience on earth but i think What is common amongst all of these people is none of them have found a way to replace the stuff they're using. Hmm. So they can't be that smart (laughs) because whatever they're using is going to run out and they have no idea of how to replace it. And so so unless they have a way of allowing us to live in a better way or in a more harmonious way, they are no smarter than the rest of us. Yeah, well, I think you're right, Dana. one or two of them need to read
0: 1984. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and a book within a book. So yeah, uh, yeah I'm going to put that in as your first thing into the time capsule. Absolutely, a brilliant thing to put in, I think. Excellent. Thank you.
3: Okay, let's move on to number two. What's the next thing you've chosen? The next thing I've chosen is, it's a poem uh, by Muhammad Ali. Oh. And I think it's supposed to be the shortest poem of all time. <laughs> I think I saw it in a documentary, but basically the poem goes, "Me." We. Huh, nice. So it's supposed to be the shortest poem in history, but I think it's probably the best way of capturing and helping the human spirit to connect. And I'm not sure why I thought about this time capsule in such a dystopian way. <laughs> Maybe I'm just looking at my present at the moment and being like, when this will be discovered? But at the same time, I think it's um, it underpins the best part of the human spirit. And I think that whatever state that my time capsule is discovered in, mm-hmm. then it's a useful way but I chose it because, as I said, irrespective of the uh, state of play whenever this time capsule is discovered, I think that is an important affirmation for people who may be living within a society that still stratifies itself along national or ethnic lines. Mm-hmm. But it's also important in terms of, a more, Okay, here's a more concise way to put it. I think this is almost another version of the theory of relativity. <laughs> this is the theory of human relativity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can see that.
0: Me, we. It, it's interesting, yes. isn't it? Because if you say the name Muhammad Ali, you don't think of poetry. Uh, or you think of uh, floats like a butterfly, sings like a bee. Exactly, yeah. But in fact, that is such a brilliant poem, isn't it? Yeah. To encapsulate such a deep idea and to such an important idea in those two words, it's astonishing.
3: Yeah. I think, yeah, it's, it's testament to what we can all achieve once we are kind of open to honest expression and I think that even though we all see Muhammad Ali as like a, initially as a pugilist, I think that he was able to take his kinesthetic ability. And then that became more about his ideology and his philosophy. And yeah, I think this again captures it in the best way as well. It's been a massive inspiration to me because I think that while there are a number of more materialistic ways to validate your work as a artist or a creator, mm-hmm. I think that the natural journey is about your. Well, even thinking along business lines, is that there are those materialist ways you can be rewarded, but at the top of the hierarchy of needs is self actualization. I think most human beings try to find the best way we're able to imprint on the rest of humanity because it's part of it, I guess, our ego and our fear of no longer being hmm. around. And also, I guess, that yearning to be part of something greater than our physical selves. And I think that can be seen from a number of different schools, whether it's like, people who want statues of themselves or, mm. or having children. So everyone has their different method by which we all are seeking a way of transcending our physical limitations. And, mm. um, I guess that's why, and you know, as an artist, it's very important. You want to have something that will maybe outlive you. I think is the endeavor for a lot of artists is to have something that will people think of me when I'm no longer around. So the poem speaks to me because I think that's been one of the better rewards of being a creative is that it's definitely exposed me to other people and other groups and their lives and their journeys and the nuance of their human experience mm. in ways that would have never happened had I lived my life and you know, growing up in Southeast London, occasionally traveling. You know, I've been as far afield as like Estonia and Latvia and Thailand and there are places that I may not have visited in the fashion that I have done had I not been doing comedy. Mm. I'd like to think of myself as a relatively liberal and inclusive person, but I think being able to hear the direct testimonies of other people and other groups and their experiences has, again, allowed me just to open my mind of more than I would have done under normal circumstances. Yeah, those things
0: don't only show you the differences of people around the world, but they also show you the similarities, which is exactly amazing, isn't
3: it? It really is. And I think it's a yearning that all human beings have. It's it's an esoteric part of ourselves. There's a reason why social media works as well as it does, because we all are seeking some kind of connection on the grandest scale possible because we are able to really characterize our own existence in terms of how we're interpreted by other people. It's the thing about human beings is that you don't know you're here unless other people acknowledge that you are there. Mm. And that need can become an act of fear for some, but I think it's definitely a positive strength for others. But again, it brings me back to why it's important because it's like if I'm to experience that, then that can only be effective if there's some reciprocity and I let other people feel validated and make sure that other people's existence and their journeys and lives and voices validated as well. Yeah. So, And in a way, it
0: goes back to that argument of the billionaire, which is, you know, it's fine. You want to just think about me, but it's not going to do you any good. Yeah. It's no good without we.
3: It's no good, exactly. So, And, and also it's it's because your power only works based on how much power we give it. Because again, history has taught us many times that if people decide they have enough, you're not going to be able to pay them off. And so I think, no. yeah, for these first two choices for the time capsule for me are because whoever discovers this, I want them to either get context of who I am, ends with me and we, or, um, yeah, help them to have a context of themselves because I think people are always trying to seek these truths about themselves and their own existence. Yeah, well, uh, let's put that brilliant poem
0: by the great Muhammad Ali. And when people... Talk about him and say, well, you know, he was a boxer. He was a fighter. Because he made his fame through violence. You sort of go, well, actually, he could have been a lot more famous and successful if, in fact, he hadn't stood out against violence yeah, in exactly. the way that he did. It's an astonishingly brave thing to do so early in his career to say, no, I'm not going to war. Yeah,
3: and not only that, I think if there is one group of people who can openly talk against war, people who have fought one-on-one in a ring by themselves, and mm-hmm. I think if more people who declared war will first to do the same, there'd be less wars. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. If you were like, okay, you first.
0: <laughs>
3: you get in there and do yeah. the fighting. Exactly. And then I might well follow you. Yeah. yeah. Very good. And that's the difference between a leader and uh, a manager. <laughs> Leaders tend to lead by example. Very good.
0: Excellent. Okay. Right. So that's two things we put in there. <laughs> What's number three? Right at break time to raise some funds for this podcast. So stay with us and we'll be back very soon. Thanks.
2: Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector
1: Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
2: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users
0: don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates,
2: like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
0: Welcome back, and thanks for waiting. The wait is over, though, as we are ready to hear the other things from his life that Dane Baptiste would like to have in his time capsule.
3: Number three, I think, probably a bit less profound, but it means a lot to me anyway. I think it's uh, Motown's greatest hits. <laughs> I'm happy with that. I think I put a vinyl in there. I think that uh, if we were to beam music to other entities on a galactic or universal basis, mm-hmm. I think that's probably one of the best examples of humanity, our Motown classics. Yeah. When you consider, like, even if you break it down to nuances, like, you know, Michael Jackson, who went on to be, like, the quintessential pop star mm-hmm. and superstar, Stevie Wonder, who, you know, a feat of human achievement, being able to be one of the best musicians, despite being blind. I think if you just, actually, if you just listen to the voices,
0: yeah, they move you in a way. It's not just the songs. The songs are beautiful. It is a whole coming together of extraordinary number of skills, isn't it? Exactly. Great writers, great writers, great musicians, great singers. All coming together and making this music. Quite often, with the, certainly with some of the earlier stuff, on the moment there yeah. it is. They're in a studio. They all just
3: play, and there it is. You know, Smokey Robinson, Marvin Gaye. These are amazing recordings. Amazing, and th- I think that that is a state of creativity that has been chased for years. Like to this day, you'll have like rooms full of collaborators and people working to mm. uplift one person. But to, you know, to see someone like like a Smokey Robinson bouncing off like a uh, Diana Ross and the Supremes and little Stephen mm. one. I only found out yeah, this year, Michael. This year I found out, you know um, All I Do by Stevie Wonder? Yeah. Michael Jackson and Diana Ross are doing backing vocals. No. Found out this year. <laughs>
1: that's, that's
3: amazing. So, um, that's so amazing. It's so amazing. To even think th- that level of talent is just in the same room in a recording booth. Mm-hmm. To take a song that already is sublime and, is, yeah. and transcends and to see how further it's enriched. Mm. I also this year heard for the first time the demo of human nature by Michael Jackson with Quincy Jones. Right. So there's a demo version as well, where he's kind of playing with the, the vocal range. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and he's hearing it for the first time as well. So he's ad libbing being like, Oh, I love this part. Let me try this. It's <laughs> like, it's just, and again, it's like a part of human beings is like, it's one thing seeing a finished article of something that is amazing and layered, but then even seeing that creative process as well. And just, just to marvel at that joy of creation as well. I just think mm. it, it's like when everyone's positive and everyone's collaborating together, I, I, I struggled and I think i would struggled to find somebody who would consider themselves to be a nice person or someone who's receptive to art who doesn't mm. enjoy the discography that Motown produced. Uh, well, you only have to be in any room when it starts
0: playing yeah. to know the power of it. It's yeah. astonishing. For example, Superstition, it's the drum beat, it's, it's just a single drum beat on yeah. its own that starts that song. And that drum beat alone
3: will make people go, oh,
0: and all jump to their feet.
3: Absolutely, and I think most people, even if they don't know it word for word, the tenets of it, or just even just even just the just the vocal aptitude of what is being played, mm. that's relate to most people, you know. And, and again, we're still just talking about the tip of the iceberg. because We're not even talking about like Marvin Gaye. Mm. And being like you know, I definitely think that R and B as it exists now, definitely the lead innovator has been Marvin Gaye. And yeah. but then, but then even with Marvin Gaye, it's like sexual healing being like the basis for like R and B and the sonic foundation for it as it exists now but then even making songs like What's Going On. Yes, just,
0: just to make that song is, is astonishing because it's such a risky thing to do for a man yeah. in, in those days at that time. I mean, risky now for an artist. Even now,
3: he, he didn't have to. He's
0: selling sex. He's selling yeah. sex and love and, and romance. And suddenly he's saying there's something wrong with
3: the world. And he did not have to. Yeah. Like, you know, it spoke to him. And for me, I find it very inspirational because... We all have the tendency, you know, to have a much easier life and be commercially successful. But I think we all should have experience, human experiences, and I think that having that human experience and that connection is also the fuel that allows us to create. Because uh, I remember seeing when Insulate Britain, so before I even stop oil, Insulate mm. Britain, were also protesting against the uh, cost of living crisis. And it's weird how people have forgotten it. Mm. But I remember speaking to one of the leaders of Insulate Britain. He was like, "I'm a GP, like I'm a doctor, retired doctor. I don't have to do this." But clearly there are other people who resemble me who are close to me, people maybe I've worked or treated who are going to be directly affected by this. Mm. And, you know, I guess for me, it's like, I tried my best to, because I I don't want to ever act like I'm the, you know, I'm not Lenin reincarnated.
0: No, but you have had the courage exactly at a time when, in fact, you could have just been telling funny jokes. Yeah. But you've had the courage to bring up certain things, to talk about certain things in your work that some people might have gone, well, I didn't pay to see this. But actually, yes. it's important that they do see it.
3: They do see it, and, and sometimes it makes them uncomfortable. And, mm. you know, I I do so because I'm aware that there have been people, like Motown is a perfect example of people who would arguably dealing with much more adversity than I was. And yet somehow we're able to take that inspiration and provide, cause like I said that that's music that could be looked at so many different ways. You have that music that underscores what's happening at the time with songs like what's going on. But then at the same time, also even for those seeking escapism provide something there. Yeah. Ain't no mountain high enough. Yeah. So, and Off we go. Exactly. Some people just need it uplifting and some people yeah. need that. And so for me, it's like, I try to look at art the same way I do about love. And again, this is, this is a, a dynamic process. So I'm not there yet necessarily, Michael, but it's like these are energies that you have the opportunity to harness. They're not, I can't own them. The reason why there is a Dame Baptiste is because there have been predecessors before that have been able to positively influence and trailblaze for me to be in spaces and be able to have the voice I do and be able to inform my expression. And so I believe it's, we have no kind of rigid rank in our line of work, but I think there's some obligation to do the same is to take this art form, innovate on it, improve it as much as you can so that whoever's coming next will be able to enjoy, you know, you've got to plant the trees, even though you know, you're not going to enjoy the shade. Mm -hmm. And that has to be a covenant. I do my best to maintain because part of that is that's how you outlive yourself and your work outlives you as well. And also how you stop being me and become we. Precisely. Exactly. And uh, I think I can postulate to people about this, but when you've got this kind of music in the background, <laughs> it's a much sweeter pill to swallow, I think. <laughs> I just think it's so important. And I think, you know, there are a number of things I may not necessarily be able to connect with my parents about. And I'd say that we don't have a close bond, but we can all listen to Motown and get something good out of it. Mm. And I just think, I just think in many ways, you know, you look at somewhere like America and recent populists talk about making it great again. They do well to start with that. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that completely. Wow.
0: Yep. The best of Motown goes in there. Yeah. Well, I'm going to put it all in. I'm going to put all yeah, of exactly. Uh, the whole it thing. Free. <laughs> fantastic. Must little hard drive. go fill in there. Yeah, we can do it. Yeah. With Quincy Jones overlooking it, I think, probably. Yeah.
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Honorable <laughs> mention. Yeah, that makes
0: that perfect sense. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> uh, okay, Fantastic. Okay, we've got two left. We've got one you want to keep and one you want to forget.
3: Yes. The next thing is a pair of Reebok Classics. I think for me, this is uh, some nostalgia for me and I think, yeah, a reminder of myself. This is my uh, Memento Mori bit, the trainers. Mm -hmm. For me, Reebok Classics represent, I suppose, a time when I was forming my own independent self-image in my adolescence. Um, Also a time where I had the independence to decide on my style and decide on like my tastes, whether they be musical or uh, cinematic or just in general, just just being myself and coming into my own as a, as a person. And I think Reebok Classics capture that very well. Mm. Also, I'm size 11 and uh, I like these trainers because they don't make my feet look big. <laughs> and it's, it's it's always been a, a, something I'm quite conscious of because growing up in the UK, London is considered quite a hub for style alongside Paris, Tokyo, New York et al. Uh, I think Londoners, we've always prided ourselves on having our individual style. Mm. and i spent a lot of time in the states as well growing up like obviously trainers definitely was a uh, social phenomenon and trend in the states before it was here mm. and i'd look at basketball trainers and uh then i'd look at them in my size and be like yeah they're way too big to go with the rest of my <laughs> british attire but then now i kick myself all the time because some of these trainers they are selling for ridiculous amounts now so had i been in the mind of being a curator I could have probably earned myself a very small fortune, but a decent one at that. Yeah, just a few Jordan airs would be. Yeah, a few. Jo- yeah, would have been fine. And we've got classics, kind of for me. Are, they are a, the, a nice nexus between like that style, nostalgia, also comfort, mm. and also relatively cost effective because they're still relatively affordable and they still suit me. And I feel like I think they almost they also kind of remind me to not. Feel the pressure to conform to new fashion trends and to yeah just be yourself and um and and also they to me they represent achievement because I remember them being fifty quid and being like there is no way my mom's gonna able to spend money on trainers for fifty quid when I'm still growing she'll never do it I can't get <laughs> to it so for me it was almost, it, it was a big um, milestone of financial independence to be able to afford my own. So I think that's what they also represent as well. Yeah,
0: I went to a festival recently, and there was a stall selling second-hand trainers, and some of them were astonishingly expensive. Oh, yeah. But just in the sort of the bargain basement bin, I'm wearing them now. I found a pair of... I'll take it <laughs> off, I'll show it to you. I really like them. I've, look, just the absolute classic Adidas.
3: Oh, yeah, goes great slides. Yeah, yeah. Classic, exactly. Classic Adidas. Can't tamper with the classic. And you know how you know... Because you can go to any trainer store today, Michael, and you'll still see them on sale. Still there. Without sounding too old and being in my old guy's (laughs) soapbox. It's more about like, obviously people understand that some things are just classics and they work. And obviously there should be space for innovation and for new things, but nothing under the sun is original. And so homage has to be paid. You know, I think nostalgia is a good thing as well, but there's a limit to that as well. But I think there is a way that we can all coexist and we can all positively feed into each other because I think they say, you know, when it comes to when it comes to battle, young people are the ones that execute and older people are supposed to give counsel. So in the battle to uh, continue to innovate as artists in the face of like artificial intelligence and uh, corporate engineering, then we can all learn from each other. Yeah and you can learn from the past. You know there's no Oasis without the Beatles. So Exactly. Not just that. I mean the Beatles have been the basis for Oasis, they've been the basis for like the Stones, they've been the basis for Kings mm-hmm. of Leon. Anytime you see like a quartet band, that's where the basis began. Same as the Jackson's, the Jackson 5, the quintet model for boy bands has been the repeated model yeah. ever since. Yeah, absolutely. And so yeah. yeah, the classics for me are also to remind myself of where I've come from as well. Right. And also not to take myself too seriously in that, you know, you don't just have to then have these ostentatious displays of wealth just because you have it. Just If this is what makes you feel good, then that's what you should do. Absolutely. Especially if they don't make your feet look too big. Exactly. And they don't <laughs> rub either, so it's great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Okay, Dane. That's, that's the four things you want to keep in the time capsule. So there's one thing you want to put in there so you can forget it.
3: Yeah. It's a more recent thing. It took a while. I think there's a number of things, but again... I want to maybe narrow it down. So it's a strange one, but I think the, uh the transcripts of Mark Zuckerberg's congressional hearings <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> sounds weird, but I'll explain Mark Zuckerberg basically had congressional hearings where he had to give evidence about the data that was being captured on, on Meta and how that was being used. And in many cases weaponized mm. and, If people who are listening are not aware, some of that was sold to companies like Cambridge Analytica and other data houses. And those have been used to create substantial and in many cases, atrocious divides with people. And it has forced human discourse, particularly on social and digital media, to be reduced to binary code. Mm. And it's caused massive issues with our social harmony. In that now, if you say before, you could say to me, Dane, I like potatoes and I like them mashed. And I'd be like, cool, I like chips. Whereas now, if you say I like potatoes, I'd be like, why the fuck do you hate turnips, Michael? Why do you hate turnips? What's wrong with them? You are a turnip phobe, sir. Because we <laughs> now reduce all of our arguments to zeros and ones. So for you to express desire for one thing almost has to mean you hate something else. Very true. That's not necessarily the case. And so... No human moderation has disappeared at a time where we could be using this tool to have conversations on a scale never imagined before. And we've not handled it very well. And I feel like we definitely need to have that reminder so that this does not happen again. However, we're able to navigate out of the phenomenon that is social media. Mm -hmm. But for me, social media is probably the first time we as human beings have experienced true discursive democracy. So more people can have more conversations with more people than it's ever been possible. The problem is that we didn't really use democracy that well when we had it. No. Because there are a lot of people who will be very vocal about what they perceive to be corruption or injustices in society. And you'll say to them, do you vote? And they'll go, I don't vote. There is no point. (laughs) And you'll go, but then even if you don't believe in in the system as it exists What work are you doing towards creating a new system? Mm -hmm. And yet people who are fully opposed to the idea of voting or opposed to the bipartisan political system will happily volunteer their innermost thoughts on social media and will seek validation from that. I've been guilty of that myself. We've Mm -hmm. all been able somehow to be coaxed into giving our ghosts to the machine and it not really having an effect. And I think it's created a very serious complex amongst people And I think that Mark Zuckerberg and his stakeholders, as well as Elon Musk, who also purchased X, need to take a lot of responsibility for that because I don't think they are aware of the damage they have done. And I really don't think they understand the implications of their actions. And uh, it really worries me. I used to, when I was a kid, and used to read about like medieval times, and they would speak about like some of the cruel and unusual punishment they would have for like heretics and blasphemers and, like being hung, drawn, and quartered. I remember that being uh, the end of like Braveheart. And I remember thinking to myself, who the hell is going to leave their house to watch someone be hung, drawn, and quartered? And now, no. Mm. Mm. People on social media would happily do that shit if they are rabble roused enough to a point of hysteria and hatred. Basically, we've turned smartphones into torches and pitchforks. Mm. And you can manipulate people well enough to make them do and say and think unspeakable things, as we said, where. To bring it full circle, somehow people believe that seeking asylum is a bad thing. And yet no one's like, what are they seeking asylum from? Prevention is better than cure used to be like a big part of I did biology at school. And that's how the whole idea of immunization and immunology works. Prevention is better than cure. And yet now it's just, I'll just obliterate and get rid of it. And we're tired of hearing from experts that is an insane statement for somebody to be able to make and get away with. Yeah. And I think that because we, I suppose that sounds bad. I don't want to sound too bourgeoisie, but it's like, I think democracy and mob rule, because that's what it is really democracy as it may have existed on a very micro social level. You understand why aristocracy exists. So not everyone needs to have a voice and not everyone's voice can necessarily be particularly relevant to a topic. So we create a system where we have representatives that kind of cover the most of what people think. Mm. But now, because everybody can have a voice, there are people who have not learned the etiquette of empathy and humility to concede when their viewpoint is not being accepted or not being validated. Or being disproved. disproved. Or being disproved, yeah. Or being disproved. And so we're in a time now where, you know, truth has become such a subjective thing mm even facts have become so subjective that even if you can prove something now, what difference does it even make? Because people yeah. can just say they're entitled to their opinion and remain rigid in whatever they believe. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's a very worrying time to be in because at least if someone had opposing views, it was open in discussion for you to be able to prove these points. And that person may not have to concede entirely that, you know, they're wrong, but they would have the presentation of the facts. Mm. And now if human beings don't have that, how much of our reality can we be sure of? Mm. Especially now you, you know, you can deep fakes and AI can fake voices and, yeah, it's a worrying time. It's a very worrying time. You no, know, the
0: whole thing, you know, social media and all those things—it was supposed to be something, or it should be something, that makes us all understand each other better. It we could all, have been amazing. We yeah. ought to see each other's point of view and go, "Oh, listen to this person here," and you can do it from anywhere in the world at any time. And so yeah. we—it sh- should have brought us closer together, but it's—it's yeah. it's been divisive, exactly. strangely.
3: But then, I, and then, and it's an interesting thing because I argue then that social media has given us the closest power to a god that we've had in terms of omnipresence, omniscience, and omnipotence. Because Mm -hmm. our words can now smite a person. That's the omnipotence. If enough of us call for the cancellation of a human being, there'll be smoke from the earth. Mm. We can now see what's happening in different parts of the world with more detail. You type the right thing into Google search, you could look at the inside of a hut in Cambodia and in the right social media group or right algorithm, find out what's going there and be anywhere. And maybe... We're not built to handle these things. And yet no one's necessarily talking about it. It's like Jeff Goldblum says in Jurassic Park, so busy working out whether or not we could, we didn't stop to think about whether we should. Yeah. Mark Zuckerberg is more of a straw man for this thing. But I think his name first, because it was like he had these hearings where people were like, do you realise how much damage you're causing and they didn't mm-hmm. really make the news because now people go to Facebook for their news anyway. So what you're not going to find are lots of articles that are critical of its creator. No, even though we're at a time now where it's like no one knows what's right or wrong. And no one knows what to believe. And some people are so far gone that, uh, you know, 25 years ago, most of the way that people behave on social media would be a Louis through episode of a cult. <laughs> and we'll be like those people are crazy <laughs> and now it's not hard to find people who have these beliefs because now people can find enough people in the re- like uh, the way i see it is that like social media is like a high school and high school like i said when i had my reboot classics is where people are beginning to discover their own self-image we're trying to identify with other tribes of people that represent us or how we feel our disposition is and our outlook is on the world and we're all trying to find our tribes and our groups and sometimes there are some people who are maybe outcasts and misfits. And that's mm. unfortunately, that's just been the law of how humanity works. But now there's enough misfits through social media for them to feel like they're an empowered group as well. <laughs> yeah. Whereas before, if your thoughts on particular things were too extreme, you would have to learn as a human being through natural etiquette to kind of temper those thoughts and be like, I might think this, but I can't espouse it so much around most people because they'll be like, you're the village idiot. Yeah. But if there's enough village idiots, you're just a group of your, of your own. <laughs> yes, quite. And so it's uh, created a lot of new fringe groups and extremist groups that probably wouldn't have felt as empowered if they didn't have this as a resource. And while it could have been something that really addressed some people's feelings of uh, loss or loneliness, it's done that, but it's weaponized people's loneliness in a way that uh, probably is not going to be very healthy if it's not dealt with. No, So I want that aspect of it gone. I think that uh, we need to create some kind of aristocracy. And I just think the, the same human etiquette and standards of decency that we've taken thousands upon thousands of years to work on in real life, we need to start doing in social media, Because especially because we now have a whole new species that is watching us. And if we say that we're made in God's image, you might argue that God has flaws in their self. And if we're doing the same with artificial intelligence, well, in the same way that like we got to a point where we kind of disregard God's relevance, artificial intelligence might get to the point where it's like doesn't necessarily get rid of us, but it's like we don't need to listen to these guys anymore. No, they don't make any sense. Yeah, they they don't make like they say they're doing this and they're doing this, so it's quite paradoxical. So we just because I think I think again as someone said that in maybe twenty years' time, the comparative intellect that we perceive we have compared to ants, Mm -hmm. how AI will see us. (laughs) they may may evolve beyond using the same language as us they may look at us and be like well these guys can only thrive on one planet in one solar system in Mm -hmm. one Milky Way galaxy whereas they may develop a way to transcend this and leave us behind and you know we talk a lot about intergalactic travel and being in other places and it might be that we just never thought about the fact that you don't have to physically be there and Mm. this might be something that AI works out before us and just leaves us to it Yeah, quite. Of course, because in a way they
0: are energy, aren't they? And if, if in fact, you say something's 120 light years away, which I think they've just discovered a planet that think might be habitable, and they say it's 120 light years away, you say, good, so only 120 years away if I can travel at the speed of light. Exactly.
3: Which, of course, energy can. Energy can. And the thing is, it's not that we don't understand energy. We understand, like, on a fundamental understanding of physics, we know how energy works, but then the question is, how are we going to be able to maybe utilize this knowledge if we are saying we're tired of experts and we're continuing to keep ourselves anchored in more archaic belief? Because mm. we might not want to do it because we're afraid they won't stop. No. And we won't be like the top dogs anymore. No.
0: So Yeah, let's Let's yeah, put, it put it in there. Very good. And I will follow your guidance of etiquette and politeness and say it's an absolute joy to meet you. It's been lovely to talk High to five. you. Likewise. Thank you for having me. You too. And I'm really grateful for you doing this for me. Thank you. No, my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Dane Baptiste. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dane. It's interesting, isn't it, how many comedians, when they talk about things that they really care about in life, become quite serious about it. It's been one of the revelations for me doing this podcast. It's not always the case, but it often is. If you enjoy hearing this other side to people, then please subscribe to this podcast. And rating and reviewing us is always appreciated and really helps, I promise. I'm on social media if you want to chat, as is my time capsule. So do search us out and follow us. We always try to answer any questions and suggestions about future guests are most useful and welcome. The theme tune by Pastor P's Music is available on Spotify for free in its entirety. And don't forget that the generous listeners who subscribe to Acast Plus get this podcast ad free and receive a weekly bonus podcast, My Time Capsule, The Debrief. This was a cast-off production produced by John Fenton Stevens. Right, now, now I'm a bit loath to do a joke when one of our guests is one of the top stand-ups in the country. So I thought I'd stick to the day job and do a bit of drama for you. Well, I thought I would, but I I just couldn't find the right thing to do. In the end, I asked John, but he was no use got quite upset and pleaded with him. John, can't you see this is the last act of a desperate man? He said it sounds more like the first act of Henry V. I thought that'll do. So, once more, run to the breach dear. Now I won't put you through that. Bye.